You're listening to Southside Baptist Church Podcast with our pastor, Dr. Jeff Parker. For more audio content, please refer to our website at ssbaptistchurch.com. have your Bibles, I want you to take them and turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. We have uh, we have guests in our congregation today. And I'm proud to say I also have my new grandson here today. Silas, and uh, good, uh, good to see him back there, and they've had a few uh, sleepless nights, but things are better now, and uh, we just need to pray for these new parents. Yeah, you have your Bibles, though, turn to Ephesians chapter 2, and we're going to be looking at, beginning at verse 1, so let me go ahead and read this, and then, uh, then let's begin to unpack it a little bit. There's some things that I want you to you to understand today as you hear the heart of your pastor. In Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at verse 1, Paul says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Also of us also... All of us also, Paul includes himself now, lived among them at one time gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive in Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ. Notice Paul continues to use the the same analogy that we have here in our sanctuary in in this picture of a corral or a pen with Christ there at the doorway of it. He continues to say, in Christ, in Him, raised with Christ. Now in in verse uh, 6, and God raised us up, see it, with Christ, and seated us with him in the heavenly realms, where? In Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparably riches, incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us, where? In Christ Jesus. For it is by grace that you have been saved, through faith. This is not of yourselves. It is the gift of work, God, it's not of works, so that no one can boast, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works with which God prepared in advance for us to do. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we just pray, dear Lord, for the power of your Holy Spirit to be with us now. We pray, dear Lord, that you would empower your messenger that, dear Lord, you would do what only you can do, and that is to enliven your word. 
that you would make the hearts of those that are in this room fertile, broken. Father, we pray, dear Lord, that we thank you that, dear Lord, through your sovereign love for us and the free will of man, that they're married together in Christ. We pray, dear Lord, that you give us wisdom now as we begin to look at this passage, as we begin to talk for a moment, dear Lord. We pray that you would do what only you can do. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. When I was um, a young man in college and then a little bit after that, I worked as an EMT, uh, uh, an emergency medical technician with an ambulance service. A lot of times we were called to the homes of people in which they were unable to rouse somebody. And I remember a good friend of mine going to their home and and he said, my dad's back here. And we went back there. We began to examine the eyes to see if the pupils would respond, if they would dilate. We began to check for a heartbeat. We began to check to see if there was any breathing. And, and I can remember on, the, on one occasion going out looking at a friend of mine who was waiting outside the bedroom door of his dad and saying, I'm sorry, but your dad is gone. I remember another time, and I've told you about this, a young lady that I went to school with where her dad had accidentally dropped a shotgun and shot himself point blank, and, and, um, and, and she was crying, and they had all gathered at the hospital, and, and her, thought, her, her statement was, please do what you can to save my dad. And I did CPR on her dad for an hour and 45 minutes from the time he died in the ambulance to the time the doctor finally said, that's it, let's call it quits. It, 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 I know death. A lot of times as a pastor, I've been in, in funerals and gatherings where family members were standing near a coffin and they were looking at somebody and I think deep down in their heart, they were longing for this family member to somehow respond, but they would not. Death, just the word, you know, I don't know about you, but it, it just has a ring to it. There's something about it. And here we see the Apostle Paul telling you and I that before Christ, that we were dead in our trespasses and in our sins. Now, several weeks ago when we began this journey, I talked to you about how the church evolved and how it came through a great theological polarizing argument in which the followers of John Calvin and the followers of Jacob Arminius were disagreeing over some of these theological terms that we use here and we see here where Paul is talking about being predestined, elect, chosen and those words and, and how free will uh, began to be a topic of controversy and how the church began to gravitate and polarize and separate in the 15th, 14th, 15th and even into the 16th century how Baptists began to kind of pull out of that, and they basically looked at the followers of John Calvin, they looked at the followers of Jacob Arminius, and said, we don't know that we can agree with either one of these systems of theology. And so basically in 1522, the Anabaptists, radical reformers, rebaptizers, began to identify themselves distinctly from both polarized theological opinions. And out of that, Southern Baptists came. Well, that wasn't the only controversy, and real quickly in church history. There was a British monk around the 4th century, a man by the name of Pelagius. And Pelagius had a... He, I, I say that he had free will on steroids. 
He didn't believe in the he didn't uh, he didn't believe in original sin, the doctrine of original sin. He he believed that sinners had the ability to to initiate and come to salvation in and of themselves. He had some strange views that the church, the early church, would say was heresy. Augustine would kind of be his polar opposite because Augustine was preaching the biblical model of grace, the forgiveness, the free gift of salvation, the forgiveness of God in these things. Pelagius became upset with Augustine and believed that there was a moral laxity beginning to develop. In other words, Pelagius said, hey, this is too easy, this idea of grace being free and available to all. And and so Pelagius began to respond to that and he swung to, to to a belief system that we consider to be heresy. And so in the 4th century, Pelagius and Augustine where again, the idea was there was a polarization in the early church. There was a lot of misunderstanding. And some would say that an Arminian is semi-Pelagius, which means that they're kind of a a cross between Pelagius and, and Augustine. I know you may say, well, what does this matter? I'm just simply telling you that church history has always had this tendency when it's working out its theology to gravitate, polarize, and find itself sometimes with differences that can be very, very deep. And this is one of them. Today we come to Ephesians chapter 2. And if there ever is a verse of Scripture that has caused sometimes confusion between Calvinist and Arminian, it is here. Because a Calvinist, someone of the Reformed position, would say, here it is. In Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1, they would say, looking at this passage, number one, that man is dead. Paul makes it clear. Number two, that a dead man cannot do anything. Number three, if a dead man can't do anything, then this would require God to do something in a dead man in order that he would respond to the offer of grace. Again, regeneration, a Calvinist would say, precedes faith. And let me put it this way. You you get born again then faith, then acceptance of salvation. So a Calvinist would look here, or someone of the Reformed faith, and they would finally say, number four, because all men are not saved, then undoubtedly God does it in some men and does not do it in others. And ladies, I'm I'm including you as well. Now, when you look at this passage here, you would say, well, you know, This supports that position. That makes sense, that regeneration would precede faith, that God would have to go in and do something because a man is dead. And so a Calvinist would say that God goes in, he regenerates, recreates, births again a man so that he will respond favorably to the offer of free grace. And that group of individuals who respond favorably to whom God identifies and in essence goes in and regenerates their hearts so that they respond favorably, those are the elect and they are the predestined. In other words, God changes their will so that they respond favorably. So in essence, man is not free. 
as we would think of it. R.C. Sproul said this, He said, a man has to be born again before he can be saved. Now I want you to know this, that even among Calvinists, that was uh, uh, Spurgeon thought that was ludicrous. He didn't agree with that statement, but many would hold to that. So in essence, what the Calvinists would say, those of the Reformed position would say, that man is dead in his trespasses and sin, and unless God goes in and resurrects, regenerates, recreates his heart, tweaks his heart, then he'll never be able to respond to God. And once God does that in the heart of of a man, then all five points of Calvinism are available or are for the elect. Total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. Now the only problem with that is, and I want you to stay with me, Because you may say as a Baptist, and you may say today with this controversy, then why is there so much, um, why is there so much confusion here? And why do people, listen to this, why do people become so upset when you bring this up? Have you ever thought about that? Why is this such a critical issue? And why do people get so upset when we begin to talk about this? The fact that God could go in and, and regenerate or recreate the heart of one individual so they respond favorably to the offer of grace and God will pass over someone else. You know, what's the problem? And I want you to stay with me here because there's two problems. There's the origin of evil and there's the definition of love. I want to read to you a quote out of C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity. C.S. Lewis could not hold to this position, the Calvinist position. And I want you to hear what he said. He said, if a thing is free to be good, it is also free to be bad. And if free will is what has made evil possible... Now, did you hear that? C.S. Lewis said, if a thing is, made, if a thing is free to be good, it's also free to be bad. And free will is what has made evil possible. Why then did God give them free will? Because free will, though it makes evil possible, is also the only thing that makes possible any love or goodness or joy worth having. A world of automation, of creatures that work like machines, would hardly be worth creating at all. The happiness which God designs for His higher creatures is the happiness of being freely, voluntarily united to Him and to each other in an ecstasy of love and delight compared with which the most rapturous love between a man and a woman on this earth is mere milk and water. And for any of this to happen, any for that, for that to be true, they must be free. In other words, C.S. Lewis said this, if you coerce or you manipulate someone's heart in order for them to love you back, then in essence you have redefined love and it's no longer in its purest form love at all. Now I've used this example a lot of times and Sheila's on the back row back there, it kind of throws me off, but she's back there by my grandson. But if I I said to Sheila, if I told you, I said, you know, if I just begin to brag on Sheila, and I said, you know, Sheila is just the greatest thing in the world to me. I love her so much. She would do anything for me. I mean absolutely anything. In fact, let's say that all of a sudden, let's say that one of you, Clyde, said, well, I don't know if I believe that or not. And I said, well, I'll prove it to you. 
And so I, I say, Sheila, would you come up here? Sheila gets up and walks down here, comes up here on the platform, and I said, Sheila, I'm getting ready to take this stool and pull it up here, and while I'm preaching, I'm going to ask that you'll take my shoes and socks off and massage my feet while I'm preaching. Now you're sitting there thinking, well, man, that is a lot to ask. I mean, you know, that's, that's a, it's going to take a lot of humility for her to get up at your beck and call, come down here, take, unlace your shoes, take your shoes off, pull your socks off, and sit there and massage your feet while you sit on that stool and finish preaching this message. And I might even look at you and say, if a woman would be willing to do that, wouldn't you say that she loves me? And you'd say, yeah, I, I, I think so. So all of a sudden, Sheila comes up here, and about the time she gets up here, she comes over and she says, what do you want me to do? And I said, hang on a minute. And all of a sudden, I lift up the back of her, of her jacket there, lift up the back of her blouse, and you see me flip down a laptop. And, and all of a sudden, you see me. I'm sitting there just like Eric was a moment ago, or Jeffrey a moment ago. I'm sitting there, and I'm typing, and I do a few things, and then I put the laptop back in, click it into place. Sheila then says, whatever you want me to do. She, she begins to kneel down. She pulls my shoes off, pulls my socks off, and begins to massage my feet. And I look at Clyde, and I say, Clyde... Look how much she loves me. And Clyde says, well, wait a minute. I don't know what you have there. I don't know if it's some kind of Stepford wife. I don't know if it's some kind of robot. I never knew this about our pastor's wife. But you programmed her to respond favorably to you. You see, by nature, by nature, you would say, well, that's not, that's not love. Now, some might argue and say, well, wait a minute, because see, this was C.S. Lewis. Some might argue and say, well, would you not manipulate the heart of someone you love in order to save them? In other words, you might, you might, you might contest that. You might say, well, now, wait a minute, you, you know, but wouldn't you do that if it meant saving Sheila? And wouldn't you do that, wouldn't you do that to save her wouldn't, if you loved her that much? That's true. But you put yourself in a corner now because for God so loved what? The world. So if God is going to, to do this, if you would manipulate the heart of someone you love so dearly so that they respond favorably, then number one, first of all, who does God love? God loves the world. Number two, if that were true, then God would regenerate the hearts of all men. Why doesn't he do that? Because for love to be love, it requires free will. And this was why C.S. Lewis in the greatest, greatest apologetic, one of the greatest apologetics, specifically addressed this theological issue. Now there comes a third problem, and stay with me here, it is the character of God. I heard a megachurch pastor make this statement. He said, I am chosen and I'm not worried about the origin of evil or the character of God. But the question becomes this. Would God manipulate, would God tweak the heart of some to respond favorably to his advances while passing over the rest of humanity? And that's the question we have here. Let me illustrate this maybe a little bit more. We have a family here by the name of Johnny and Kathy Millwood. Now the reason I say that is because people who listen 
on the website will not be aware of who they are. But Johnny and Kathy have two daughters, Chrissy and Lexi. Chrissy's the older one, 13, and Lexi is how old? 11. Now let's say that Sheila and I go to Johnny and Kathy's home where they have two daughters, and as we get there, we walk in, and the house is kind of quiet, and we, we begin to ask about the girls, and they say, well, uh, uh, they're deathly ill. Uh, they're, they're deathly ill. And, and so we say, we go in, we see the two girls, they're both deathly ill, and we say, well, you know, wait a minute, we've had, this, we've had this illness. In fact, all four of our kids had this illness. And so I pull out two bottles of pills. I say, now this bottle here will cure Chrissy and Lexi of, of what's ailing them. This will cure them of this disease that's going to lead to their death if they don't take it. There's only one problem. They're not going to take it. They're not going to want it. So this second bottle here is to, is to affect them so that they will want the, the pill that's going to cure them. Okay, now you still with me. Say amen. Stay, okay, stay with me. So anyway, they say thank you. We leave and a few days later we come back and when we come back we look out there and there's Lexi out there playing with some friends out in the yard. And so we smile to ourselves and say, well, undoubtedly they gave the medication. Then we walk in, we say, well, well, how's Chrissy? Where's Chrissy at? Well, they say, well, she's, she's deathly ill. She's back there in the bed. In fact, she's barely alive. And so we look at them and we say, well, wait a minute. Did you give them the, did you give them the pill? Now, they could say, well, we gave them the pill that would cure. I said, well, did you give her the pill or, or try to, you know, say something? But in essence, they didn't give the pills. They didn't give them the cure. And we might look at him and say, well, wait a minute, why did you do that? And they said, well, we just thought Lexi would be, you know, we're gonna, we're, we want Lexi to be well, and we just kind of allowed Chrissy to go where she was going to go anyway, and that is she was going to die. Now, that's a poor example, but if you and I heard them say that, we would question their character. You see, this is what C.S. Lewis was saying. This is what so many say as they look at this theological opinion or this persuasion of, Cal of John Calvin. Is there is a danger here that it redefines love, that God would pass over a portion of humanity. So, so the point being, God loves the world. And through His grace, He has provided a cure for the world's illness. And that is Jesus. And he gives you and I a free will, the capacity to respond to this offer of grace, to respond to the love of God, or to reject it. Now in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul has primarily been reaching back into eternity in the past. He wants, he wants the church to see the eternal purpose of God, which was his plan of salvation and redemption through his son Jesus. In Ephesians chapter 2 now, Paul begins to tell man what he looks like to God outside of that enclosure, outside of Christ. A man, he tells of man's lost condition in time and how God has made possible the renewal of fellowship with him through Christ. In other words, God loves us. For God so loved the world. This is Jesus to Nicodemus. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. 
Now one writer said this, referring back to Ephesians 1, 19 through 23. The same power of God in raising Jesus from the dead and giving him dominion over all things is at work in the lives of those people who respond to his saving grace and love. It is this power which changes men from death to life and enables them to walk in harmony with both God and men. Those who in their free wills respond in faith, God is making into a new people unto himself, the third order of man, whether they be Jew or Gentile, this is God's grace. So Paul reminds these Ephesus believers, outside of Christ, you and I were dead. And so in verses 1 through 3, let's look at them again. Well, let's say this. First seven verses are one sentence in the Greek. But if you look at verses 1 through 3, what Paul is doing here, Paul is talking about a before and after. Sheila and I, we watch uh, on... Uh, HGL or whatever this is, this house channel. We have the very basic cable, but we do have that. And we watch this program called House Hunters where people will go and they're moving to another city and they're trying to find a home and they'll narrow it down to three and then you sit there and wonder which one of the three they're going to choose. And often what they'll do, they'll show a person, they finally pick a house, they move into it, and then they'll do a picture before and after the family's been in the house for six months or three months or whatever. And it's remarkable to see the change. Now the Bible says this, that you and I are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And what Paul was wanting us to say is that when you and I are outside that enclosure, when we are outside of Christ, we are dead in our sins and our trespasses. And yet Jesus comes to the world and he said, I've come to give you life and to give it to you abundantly. Now the only problem with this is, there's not a problem with it, but people sometimes misinterpret this. They say, well, I'm dead. There's nothing that I can do. This automatically proves that God's completely in control. God's going to save who he wants to save. And the rest of us, we just sunk if we're us and I'm not us. R.C. Sproul in his commentary on Ephesians said this. He said, according to this verse right here, he said, man is dead. Man's not sick. He's dead. He's not drowning. He's drowned. He's not a dead. He's not a. He's not a. He's he's a dead man. And R.C. Sproul said he cannot do anything. But is that fair? Is Sproul's illustration speaking only of physical death, as well as as, as well as spiritual? I wrote here the relation of a man who is physically alive and spiritually dead is unclean, more so how the two relate. In other words, as they relate together. So here you have the picture. In fact, repentance. What is repentance? It's an act, a cognitive act of the will in the physical realm. So here we go back to the Apostle Paul. What can a dead man, and that's what, what can a dead man do? A spiritual dead man can first of all respond to God. Now I want you to go back to the left and look at Genesis chapter 2. Now I want you to see this today because Paul says you and I are spiritually dead in our trespasses and in our sin. But what can a dead man do? 
First of all, in Genesis chapter 2, beginning at verse 8 and 9, here we have the creation of, 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 of everything and all in the universe, and then God creates Adam and Eve. And in verse 8 it says this, of chapter 2, Genesis 2 verse 8, Now the Lord had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed, and the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now in verse 15, picking up there, the Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to work it, to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, that is Adam, you're free to eat of, from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. Now, anyone who's ever heard me preach this before knows this. God, God puts a standard here. He says to man, he puts man in an unbelievable environment. He says to man, there's two, two trees. You can eat of this tree, you can't eat of this tree. He gives man a choice. He allows man to exercise his free will. He says to man, he says to Adam, he says, now Adam, I want you to listen to me closely. You can eat of that tree, but Adam, don't, go near, don't, don't eat of this tree. Now Adam, the day you eat of this tree, in the Hebrew, he uses a strange wording here. Moses, who wrote the first five books of the Bible, God says, Adam, the day you eat of this tree, the knowledge of good and evil, you will die, die. He makes it very clear. Now, he's not being emphatic. He's simply talking about two deaths. Now, pick up at Genesis chapter 3, verses, verse 1. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the other wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from the tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will die. Verse 4, you will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, look at this, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both were open. They realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together, made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? You see, here we have a picture of sin entering into creation. Man has been given a choice. Man has been told the consequences. And now man rebels against the Word of God and instinctively makes a choice that carries consequences to this very day. Sin enters and death immediately follows. Adam is physically dying and Adam is spiritually dead. Now, in, in Genesis chapter 3, 8 through 10, 
God comes looking for Adam, looking for Eve. Jesus said this, I have come to seek and to save who? The lost. Who's lost? The world. So here we have God in the very beginning here, in the beginning here saying, Adam, where are you? And this is a spiritually dead man who is about to hear the voice of God. So I want to put before you today that a dead man can hear and respond. You see, this is important because a Calvinist, that position might say, well, we can't respond to God because spiritually we are dead. Albert Barnes said this, Before leaving this verse, it is a good thing to observe how definitely the account teaches that the first man was gifted with a freedom of will. God is omniscient. God knows everything. He knows where Adam is. Adam is over there hiding out in his make-do fig leaf costume, sitting there covering himself because he's naked. He and Eve both. God comes into the garden and immediately begins to call out to Adam. Why? Because God is setting here a pattern that we find all the way through the Scripture where God is calling sinful man to come to him. So God says, Adam, where are you? God knew exactly where Adam was, but he needed Adam to respond. And to say, Lord, here am I, here I am. You see, man answers. That word ecclesia, church, ek, called out of, eklegomai. I won't have to run on the treadmill today because I'm working up quite a sweat. But a dead man can hear. Because here we have Adam, alienated from God, spiritually dead, physically dying, and yet he calls out to God when God calls out to him. Here we see him in his free will. Exactly what Paul said to those believers in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, when he said, And you also were included in Christ when you first heard and then believed. And to a Jew they understood this. Our old hymn, we have heard the joyful sound. Jesus saves, Jesus saves. A Jew understood this. Shema Israel. Hear, O Israel. A kuo to hear. And so a dead man, a dead man can respond. Adam was spiritually dead and yet he hears God and he responds to God. And some of you in this room today, you are dead in your trespasses and your sins and yet right now you can hear the word of God. God is calling out to you. Now, secondly, a spiritually dead man can recognize both God and his condition. In fact, if you look back, Satan enters in chapter 3. His objective is to cause man to stumble. He wants Adam and Eve to be broken away from God. Here you have Adam and Eve who were like children because they had no idea. You know, it'd be like a child. They had no idea of what it meant to be naked. A child runs around two years old out in the yard. They don't think anything about it. This is why Jesus said, except you be converted and come as a little child, you'll in no way enter the kingdom of heaven. There's the innocence of, child, of a child here. So here we have Adam and Eve, innocent, 
and all of a sudden the enemy Satan comes and the enemy through sin introduces sin and steals that innocence and breaks man's fellowship now with his creator. But here's a spiritually dead man who not only recognizes his condition. How do we know he recognized his condition? Because he hides. Do you see that? Here's a man that is spiritually dead, yet he hears God. God says, Adam, where are you? Here's a man who's hiding. He's hiding his sinful condition. He's ashamed of his sin. And here's God seeking. Here's God seeking man, and man's well aware. Here's a, here's a spiritually dead man who's well aware of the fact of the consequences and the cost of his sin. And so he's hiding. My friend, sinful man, a dead man can recognize what he lacks. The rich young ruler came to Jesus and said, Good teacher. Jesus stopped him right there. He said, Wait a minute. What do you mean good? Only God is good. The centurion said, Truly, this was the Son of God. Pilate said, I find no fault in this man. The thief on the cross said, We deserve this, but this man has done nothing wrong. You see dead men over and over again, recognizing, hearing God and recognizing their condition. Every act of lost man bears evidence to his free will. A lost man, a dead man, spiritually can close his eyes and close his ears so that he does not see God or hear God. But I want to give you one more thing. A spiritually dead man can repent. In Luke 15, Jesus tells us three stories. And just to save time, he tells us the story of a woman who lost a coin, a man who lost a sheep, and a father who had two sons. He says of this father who had two sons, the younger one we call the prodigal son. The Bible said there came a point in that story in Luke chapter 15 where the prodigal son, the younger son, goes to the father and he says, Father, I want my inheritance. I want what's coming to me. I'm ready to go. I'm tired of you. I want to live my life the way I want to live. And that's sin. That's sin. That's exactly what Adam said. That's exactly what Eve said. We don't care about God. We don't care about the things of God. We don't care what God has to say. We want to live our life according to the flesh, according to our desires. We want to do what we want to do. And so this was the prodigal. And the Bible says that the father gave him his inheritance. And the Bible says that he went off. Jesus said he went off and he spent it in riotous living. He began to just celebrate with his friends. He began to throw it away on sex and drugs and alcohol and all of those things. When he comes to a point that he's lost everything that he owns. Now I want to, I want to say to you a spiritually dead man can repent. Because there comes that point when that, when that son, that prodigal son is coming home and he comes back and the father runs out there and he wraps his arms around him and he welcomes him and he puts that robe of righteousness around him. He puts sandals on his feet and he does all of this and, and he, begins to, he begins to make merry and to celebrate and, and, and they go into the house and then he looks around, the elder brother's not there. And so the father goes out on a lonely hillside there where the elder brother's out there pouting and He's frustrated with the love and the extravagance of his father because his father is so loving. And he says to the father, he said, you know, all these years I've been faithful to you. I've, I've done what you've told me to do. You've never done anything for me like this. And yet when the elder, my younger brother goes out and throws all of his inheritance away, you, uh, you have a party for him when he comes back. It's not fair. 
The father puts his arm around the older brother, the elder son, and he says, son, he said, all that I have is yours. That's a powerful statement. Jesus was reaching out to the Pharisees. All that I have is yours. And then he, he says, you know, your brother, your brother was lost, now he's found. Listen to this, your brother was dead, now he's alive. You see, a spiritually dead man can repent. Because the Bible says that what happened to him when he was in the pig pen, when he was reaping the full consequences of his rebellion and everything that was going on in his life, the Bible says that in that pig pen, it uses strange words, Jesus said he came to himself. It's the picture of repentance. It's you and I coming to the full consequences of the weight of our sin and being told to repent. Jesus and John the Baptist both began their message with one word, repent. To who? To the world. A cognitive act of the will that says, God, I am tired of living in sin and dead in my trespasses and I hear you calling out to me. My friend, if God tells us to repent, He'll never ask us to do something that we are incapable of doing. Hear me. Down there in the nursery, if I walk down there and put a college uh, history book in in front of Ethan, my two-year-old grandson, and demanded that he read it and get mad at him and punish him when he can't, then my friend, that's not a matter of his character, it'd be a matter of mine. If Sheila's laptop, if I dropped her laptop down and, 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 and did something and, and all of a sudden I became angry with her and punished her, would I punish her for something I did not program her to do? You see, it has to do with the character of God. God's process of bringing men and women to Him is a process by which He allows you and I in our lost sinful state, in the midst of our sin and our trespasses, as we're wandering around outside of that enclosure. We're out here. We are are rebelling against Him. We're saying, no! We don't want to hear the word. We don't, want to, we don't want anybody praying for us. We're living in our rebellion and our disobedience. We're in sin and trespasses. This is all a place of death. But my friend, he's calling ecclesia, ekkaleo, he's calling out. He comes to seek and to save those that are lost. It's all of us. And as I, begin to, as I begin to live this life of rebellion against Him, I begin to make choices, and those choices bring consequences. And whatever a man sows that he reaps, and I keep reaping and reaping and reaping drugs, alcohol, rebellion in my marriage, rebellion in parenting. I'm just reaching, reaching, uh, reaping this crop. And all the while He's calling to me. And there comes a point in which I'm so broken down by the weight of my sin, I hear him say, Jeff, come unto me, all ye, all of you that labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. The prodigal son felt the weight of his sin. Adam felt the weight of his sin. What drives us to Christ is that call that goes across the entire world, repent. That call that goes across the entire world that says, I love you. But what also drives us is when we begin to feel the weight of of this sowing and reaping, when all of a sudden we begin to feel the weight of that, and it drives me to repentance, 
that prodigal son, when he began to feel the full weight and consequences, parents, are you listening? When he began to feel the full weight and consequences of his rebellion coming down squarely on his shoulder, he thought, oh my God, what have I done? And in that moment, in his free will, under a cognitive act of his free will by which he began to repent, he met uh, metanoia, he began to have a change of mind. G. Campbell Morgan said you can't have a change of heart until you have a change of mind. Jesus came onto the scene just as John the Baptist, and his first word was repent. All of a sudden, that's a, that's a lost man. He's spiritually dead in his trespasses and his sin. But he's feeling the weight and the consequences of the choices that he's making. My friend, listen, that's exactly what God does even after we're saved. Even after we give our life to Christ, that's how he keeps us from living in rebellion and sin. He just allows the weight of the choices that we make begin to bear down upon us so that that will bring us back to him. That's the way God works. There's a, there's a movie years ago by Mel Gibson... It's called The Patriot. And in The Patriot, it's during the, it's the setting is the, is the uh, war for independence. In, in the midst of that setting, Mel Gibson had a reputation for being a man of, of not only great valor, but a man who was kind of legendary for his brutal, barbaric killing of the enemy. And now all of a sudden he's in the, he's in the uh, Revolutionary War and there's a scene where he, he loses two or three of his children in the midst of this war and he kind of goes mad and he begins to take his vengeance out on the British. But there's one day in which he's cleaning his weapons and he's pulling his weapons and he's getting ready and he puts his head down and he says these words. He said, I am afraid that my past is more than I can bear. Adam cried out to God out of his free will when God began to call a spiritually dead man. Adam responded. He said, God, he said, I hear you. Here I am. Here I am, Lord. He just simply came out of hiding. Lord, here I am. God kills to cover his sin. God sheds blood. Again, it's a picture of Jesus Christ. A dead man, a dead man can hear God. A dead man can, can recognize his lost condition. Adam Adam hid. A dead man can not only hear, he can not only recognize his lost condition, he can repent. The prodigal son was spiritually dead, yet the Bible said he came to himself. He repented. And that's what God wants you to do today. You see, some of us in this room, and you may be here today, and you say, my past is more than I can bear. You don't have to bear it. You may be in sin and trespasses, but you have a sovereign God, a loving, kind, gracious God who extends to you grace. He's covered your past. When, I walk into, when I'm in Christ, the moment I walk into that pen, and notice he's there in the door of that pen, when I walk into that crowd, when I am in Christ, my friend, hear me. My past is forgotten by him. He doesn't remember it any longer. It is buried under the blood of Christ. And some of you in this room, your past is more than you can bear. The weight of your sin is more than you can bear. And Christ is speaking to you. 
And you may say, well, I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm, I, I, hey, I'm, I'm dead in my trespasses and sin. But you can hear Him right now. You can recognize that you're a sinner separated by Him. You can hear the call of God through the power of His Holy Spirit, through the Word of God, God speaking to you. You can repent right now. You can have a change of mind. How many men and women have I seen in the depth of alcohol and drugs and sex and pornography who finally woke up and said, God, what have I done with my life? Because they were feeling the consequences of their rebellion. There's a story told years ago, and I'll close with this, a man by the name of Ike Miller. Ike Miller was a barroom brawler in a small town. I mean, he was as mean, he was an old lumber man, and he was mean as no telling what. Ike Miller, the local little church there in that community was having a revival. And Ike Miller sent a message to the man that was preaching that revival because God had done great things through him. Ike Miller had said to that man, if you come to this community and you preach here, I will pistol whip you. So the first night of that revival, old big Ike Miller came. His wife and kids were at home. He came and he sat down on that. He sat down about the third pew back and he crossed his arms and he sat there and the whole town had packed in there. And there was Ike Miller and he was just eyeballing and looking and trying to intimidate that little preacher. And that preacher got up there and he began to preach John 3, 16, the love of God. And he began to preach and just pour out his heart. And Ike Miller just sat there and glared at him all the way through the sermon. As soon as the message was over with, and at the moment the invitation began, he got up, this big lumber man, and he turned around and he walked out of the church. People thought, well, he's going to get his pistol. He's he's going to come back here. He's going to pistol whip this man. Ike Miller made his way down that old that old street, that main street of that town, he passed by the saloon. They were hollering at him as he went by. Some of the women were hollering and said, I come on in, let's turn a trick before you, before you go home. And some of his old drinking buddies said, I come on, let's, uh, let's booze it up for a while. And they were all hollering and carrying on. And oh, Ike just didn't even pay him no mind. He just kept walking. Came down to that old raggedy looking house at the end of that street, his home. He walked up on that porch. He opened that old creaky door. And as he walked in, his wife... His wife was sitting on the bed and she took an old calico dress. She spread it out as far as she could spread it because the children were hiding up under the bed because when Ike had been drinking, he'd come in, he'd slap them around and beat them up. She took that old calico dress, she spread it across there. Those children were huddled in up under there. He looked at her and he said, Woman, there ain't no need in hiding them. Kids, come on out, out from under that bed. Come here. Those kids began to crawl out. They were trembling all over. He sit down on the bed. He looked at him and said, you got a new dad tonight. He said, I just heard the love of Jesus Christ preached. And he said, I prayed and asked Christ to come into my heart. And he looked at his wife and those kids. His wife began to cry and he said, honey, he said, you've got a new dad. You've got a new husband. I'm a new man. My friend, I want you to understand this. I, I, don't, I believe God gives you a free will. And you are here today, you may be in your sin and trespasses, and you may be spirit, you are spiritually dead if you are. But you can hear the sound of God's voice. You can hear the tug of His Holy Spirit. You've heard the Word of God preached. You can hear right now. You, can, you recognize your lost condition. You know. 
there's been many a person that would say to Jesus, depart from me. You recognize your lost condition. But you can recognize and you can hear and you can respond and, and my friend, you can repent and you can come to Christ. So I want to ask you to stand. Our Heavenly Father, dear Lord, we just come to you, Lord. Just feels like such a weight. Such a heaviness, dear Lord. I've heard people say a lot of times about this issue that it is a family secret. Lord, I wish some secrets would just remain the secret. For when we begin to analyze and dissect and take apart the secrets, family secrets, mysteries, sovereignty and free will, dear Lord, nobody wins. Lord, today I've, I've, I've preached with everything in me. I preached what I believe, dear Lord, what the Scripture teaches. And Lord, I, I don't believe that we're born again, that we're regenerated, and then we have faith, and then we accept grace. I don't believe that. I believe, dear Lord, that though we are dead in our trespasses and sin, that your Holy Spirit speaks to every man, woman, boy, and girl. I believe there's sufficient grace I don't believe in limited atonement. I believe that atonement is available to every man, woman, boy, and girl that has ever lived, ever been created. I believe that, dear God, that you loved your creation so much that when you created us in your image that you gave us something that you had, that's something that none of the other animals have, and that is the, the ability, the capacity to have a conscience, to reason, and to exercise our free will. God, I thank you that it was a risk. I thank you that you don't ravage your bride, you woo her. I thank you that, dear Lord, today that you stand ready to bring every man, woman, boy, and girl on this earth to you. You've done everything possible. You've provided the way. But men and women and boys and girls also have a free will created in the image of God. They have the ability, the capacity to receive that love or to say no, God, and reject it. And so, Lord Jesus, I, I, I admit, I've kind of stumbled through this message. It's, it's been difficult. I'm soaking wet with sweat. But, Lord, I'm not sweating up here. In fact, let me just say this. Open your eyes. I'm not sweating up here because I don't believe what I believe. And I'm not sweating because I'm intimidated. I'm sweating because the church is divided over an issue for the last 600 years that we need to put to rest. And I can tell you this much. Our denomination is too great to spend too much time wrestling and fussing and carrying on. State convention, we argued over the... Listen to this, Clyde, you'd have never believed it. At First Baptist Church Jackson, during our state convention, we were arguing, we were discussing the sinner's prayer, which was the same discussion we were having at the Southern Baptist Convention. My friend, I'm 57 years old. I believe in the sinner's prayer. It's an exercise of man's free will. 
So let's finish praying. Our Heavenly Father, again, we just say that, Lord, we trust you. Lord, I'm going to move on here pretty quick and we're going to begin to look at other areas as Paul begins to address these believers at Ephesus. But God, I pray today that every person in this room knows, every person who listens on the website, that they would understand that God loves them, that He offers the free gift of salvation to any man, any woman, any boy or girl who hears, who's willing to to hear and to respond in repentance. So God, we just trust you in the name of Jesus. Amen.